0: Um, Yeah, so we're working through this series uh, of Nehemiah, looking at a historical event where God's people have returned to Jerusalem, and uh, they've rebuilt in an incredibly short period of time uh, the walls of Jerusalem, and uh, we left them last week having turned and heard God's word being spoken, and then following that, there was days of joyful celebration. It was a great time, there were, effectively it was this giant party festival time uh, in Jerusalem as they rejoiced because the walls had been completed. This symbol, this, this iconic picture uh, of the state of the Jewish people, the state of God's kingdom had been restored, which is great news for them, uh, but what has it got to say to us today? Well, uh, yeah, I'm hoping it's not going to be quite my holiday snaps on Tuesday. Um, I guarantee there won't be any pictures of me in shades and with shorts. Uh, But I've got this one, uh, which I thought was really quite interesting. Uh, This picture here, not this one. Um, That one. Down in the bottom left-hand side there is Nehemiah's Walls. Uh, and I found that fascinating. Not just because we're in the book of Nehemiah, although that really helped, but the idea that here's something which we're reading from thousands of years ago, and yet here we are, we can actually go up and we can touch the very place where we've read about all of those people who were rebuilding the walls. We can, we can touch it. Not that there's anything special about touching it, But it makes it real, doesn't it? Now that that is real. These are the walls that were built by these people in this book that we've been reading. Somebody said to me while we were away, which I found incredibly helpful. When you're trying to piece together the story of the people of God, somebody said this. If you want to know the history of Jerusalem, understand the history of its walls. I thought that was fascinating. If you understand the history of its walls, you get the story. Because the story of the walls is is fascinating. We're not going to cover it tonight. But I guess in some sense, in God's provision, he's wanting us to understand our heritage. He's wanting us to understand how he's dealt with his people. And he's included in that understanding understand its walls understand part of this story of my faithfulness to my people that's what we've been singing about so I guess the walls exist the walls have been built the word of God has been declared the people have celebrated that's all great news but here's the question which I guess we could have left last week how do the people respond How do they respond to God's word? When they hear God speaking effectively through his word, when they gather together, they're back in this place, they're actually attending in a way that they've never attended before in their city, how do they respond? Verse 1 of this chapter begins the journey. On the 24th day of the same month, The Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth, and putting dust on their heads. It's interesting that at the point where they've ended this joyful celebration, we break into this whole chapter of confession. And if we want to give a title over this whole chapter, I guess we could call it The Confession. The confession of God's people before the word of God, before God's speaking. We, I guess if we worked through each of these verses of this chapter that we've just read, that we had to break down into two bits to get through it all, we'd probably be here for about as long as the people were there gathered together. So we're not. We're going to go through a bit of an overview, a big picture, an idea of trying to, for us today understand well how do we respond? how does this create a pattern for us in understanding how to respond to God speaking to us? At least one of the ways that we have to at some point come to terms with is recognizing that to, to be in relationship with God which what this this is what this story is really all about, how do these people, end up in relationship with God in a fulfilled way again we have to reach that point of confession we have to reach that point of acknowledgement of recognition Uh, and this is what the people are doing so uh, the first really big landscape picture that I want to take is they place themselves in history I'll read verse seven it begins like this you are the Lord God, you chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. If we've been working through uh, the various series that we've been uh, travelling through here at Christ Church over the years, we looked at Abraham, the life of Abraham, this man who was the first in a sense to to hear God speak in a deep and rich and fulfilling way again. God reconnecting with humanity through Abraham. Establishing hope in the world. Establishing this declaration, this witness of God in the world. And they're saying, that's where we're connected to. We're connected to Abraham, way back there. Here we are, we're stood in Jerusalem, we've built the walls, but we are not forgetting that we're connected to Abraham. That's where our history begins. It's where we see a It's where we see our heritage is. Uh, And they come to the end at verse 30, uh, 30 and 31. For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention, so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. We could take a huge amount of time, and it's a great journey, to look at the way in which God has dealt with his people in the Old Testament. How there is this continuing ebb and flow of their faithfulness. How they've been helped and cared for and restored. And how they've been brought back. And then once again they end up in this place of despair because they've turned away from God. If we want to understand the Old Testament, that is the story of God's people. Yes, they're there, and then they stray. And they come back. Why do they come back? Because God is faithful. Because God is caring for his people. Because he holds on to them in spite of their unfaithfulness. And he brings them back. Uh, And if you like, verse uh, 7 right the way through to verse 31, are bookends. And in between is the history of God's people up to that point in time. And here we have 40,000 people gathered together, confessing before God, and recognizing that their history is a history of ebbing and flowing and ebbing and flowing. And it's almost as though they're saying, here we are again. We are part of this history. We are connected to this past. The only reason that we are here and the only reason that our history has resulted in us being here is because you are a faithful and merciful God. Now let's just, if you like, take that pause... Nehemiah chapter 9, and now let's move forward a couple of thousand years and a little bit more, and here we are today. What do we say about us being here today? Why are we here today? Why are we here today? Why is there a church that is meeting and worshipping Jesus Why are the churches in other parts of Yorkshire and other parts of the UK and all across Europe and across the five continents of the world, why is it that we are here and worshipping God? Because of the history that begins with Abraham. We are actually connected to that. Why? Because God is faithful. Let's just kind of sharpen the lens a bit. Let's really bring it in a little bit tighter. How is it that the church has survived? In all of its ebbs and flows, in all of its faithfulness and lack of faithfulness, in all of the attacks and potential for it to be broken up and lost, in all of the abuse of God's people down through the through the years and all of the ways in which God's people have been abusive and have failed to be faithful in all of that why are we here because God is faithful because at all of those various moments in history different times and events why there was every potential in human terms for the Christian faith to be wiped out it's because God is faithful Let's, uh, let's tighten the lens in just a little bit more. So let's look at our own lives. Some of us might not yet really have committed our life to faith in Jesus Christ. I guess this can even speak to you perhaps. But for those who have for many years or for a short time... Lived a life which is claiming to have faith in God. Has our life been consistent in that journey? It hasn't, has it? We know it hasn't. But our history is connected. Our history is connected to all of that history. My life as a believer in Jesus Christ, your life as a believer in Jesus Christ is connected to the same history that these people are declaring. They're saying we're part of this. What does it say? God throughout time, from Abraham to today, and before Abraham as well, but that's a separate story I guess, God has been speaking to the world through a people. Why were the walls in Jerusalem completed? Because God was determined to continue to speak to the world. We are connected to the history of the faithfulness of God. But deeper than that, if that's the history, we also look at the contrast. Here's the next big picture, if you like. The contrast is quite simply this that is being made. A contrast between the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of the people. That's the the great confession that is being made. When we look back, these people are saying, in our words that we use to make that confession... We are making a confession which declares all the time that you are faithful. And we are making a declaration again and again that we are faithless. So never let it be said in our confession that you have ever stepped back from us. It's always been us stepping back from you. Some of you might know of the the lovely little poem, uh, Footprints. I, I can't recite it off the top of my head, but the, the basic gist of the, of the poem is quite simply this. I looked and saw two, uh, two sets of footprints walking along in the sand, and I perceived that you were walking alongside me. But then... was only for a period of time one set of footsteps footprints in the sand why did you leave me is the question that the poem asks and the reply is quite simply this I never left you it was then that I was carrying you I've been thinking about that particular poem as I've been preparing Uh, and without wanting to stretch the the meaning I, I think it's easy for us to think about they're the really hard times in life when there's one set of footprints. Well yeah that's true God is with us when we're being carried but I guess the reality is in those tough times we are deeply conscious of walking with God aren't we? Deeply conscious, and I guess in a sense, even though it doesn't feel like, we are walking. (laughs) But there's many times when we know that we can look back and we can say, do you know what, I was not walking then. I was straying off somewhere. I was away. I was distant. And yet even then, God was carrying me. Even then, God was faithful to me. Look at the way they describe it. In verse 12, they recognize this. Talking about the the time when they've been brought out of Egypt into the wilderness. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. Isn't God faithful in the wilderness to his people? And then later on in verse 17... But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not deserve them even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies, because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day, the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on them the way they were to take isn't that remarkable that the narrator deliberately recognizes oh isn't God faithful when he first brings them out of Egypt there's this pillar of fire during the uh, pillar of cloud and pillar of fire to guide them and then what do they do how did we get out of Egypt Moses is off getting the commandments and we're down here we've been left by ourselves what do we do let's let's collect up all of the gold let's collect it up let's melt it down let's let's cast a a god for ourselves let's make a god for ourselves i guess sometimes we think you know moses just nipped up the road (laughs) but it takes a bit of time to collect all of the gold and then to cast an image maybe they'd reached a point where they feel we've been abandoned they cast a golden calf for them to worship because this is how we got out of Egypt it is absurd isn't it when we look back and yet so difficult for us to place ourselves in that situation They've been surrounded for all of their lives by the gods of the Egyptians. What does a god look like? A god looks like a great big lump of gold or a lump of stone. And then suddenly Moses speaks of an unseen god into their thinking. So they come out of Egypt and they're all 100% were behind this unseen god. We've seen the way he works and then within a very short time they are falling apart and they go back to casting the gods that they know relying on the things that they thought they believed in before that is such a challenge for us isn't it what does faithlessness look like faithlessness looks like relying on the things that we previously relied on rather than believing and trusting in god That's what faithlessness looks like according to this description. It's hoping in the things that we've created for ourselves. Believing that they can save us. Believing that they can protect us. How does God deal with that faithlessness? He continues with a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. What they don't deserve is what they get. Isn't that a remarkable picture? This this whole confession is just filled with this constant picture my constant disobedience compared with your constant faithfulness. If this is to speak into our situation today, that can feel, initially, quite challenging. We are are like this, aren't we? We are people who ebb and flow. We are people who are on a mountaintop in our spiritual experience one day, and the next day we're in a valley. We're, we're We're in a... a mess, falling apart. How possibly can we, can we ever believe that we can make it through? The great comfort is this. Uh, and, and I guess that what God is doing is he's describing himself to his people in this way. And it's something that we can therefore hold on to today. And we can say this, Christian faith is not rooted in our ability to be obedient. It is rooted in the nature of God to be faithful. What's God like? that, That is a really important question. What is God like? What kind of God are we presented in the Bible? This is the kind of God that were presented in the Bible, pre- presented with a God who makes some promises. And once those promises are made, he keeps them. And he says to his people, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to make you a nation more numerous than the stars. And there is every human possibility that that is not going to work, and yet God delivers it even when the people are faithless. It's a challenge for us if we believe that we can just live our lives uh, as though somehow I can kind of tick a box on the Relationship with God webpage. Uh, Yeah, tick the box, I've got the relationship. Click Next, and I'm on to the next page, which says everything's fine. The history of God's people says that God never, never leaves us comfortable in our rebellion. He doesn't. Do you feel, do you know that? I know that. I can look back over times when my walk has not been faithful and I have not been comfortable. God does not leave us comfortable in our rebellion. And yet at the same time, that is his very That is the very example of His grace. Precisely because He doesn't leave us comfortable in our rebellion, it's because He's saying, I'm not going to leave you there. I'm not going to allow you to just kind of disappear off. And that relationship to be broken, it's not about you, it's about me. And I'm going to hold on to you and I'm going to keep you. And therefore and i guess that this reflection of this confession of these people speaks out about this i can just keep coming back and i can come back and i can come back because god is faithful it's great news so we look at they connect themselves to their history we look that they connect themselves to the faithfulness of god but thirdly, they take on for themselves the faithfulness of the past. That's a remarkable little section. Verse 2 says this They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. <laughs> what? Why do I need to confess sins from the past that I haven't even committed? What, why do why do I have to do that? What's that got to do with it? How, how does that speak to us today? 40,000 people gathered together. We confess the sins of, of our people in the wilderness when they... When they cast a golden calf, we confess that sin. I think one of the greatest problems that Christianity in the West has at the moment, one of our greatest problems, is that we live with an individualistic idea of what it means to be saved. We are individualistic. Now, we've got to be clear here. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a personal thing. I come to faith as me. And when I come to faith as me, I become a part of one. That is our biggest problem one of our biggest problems we think that it's all about me and then once I've become a Christian then it continues to be all about me and the reality is that the whole of the message of the New Testament is trying to impress upon us exactly what Nehemiah and the people are doing here we recognize that we are part of a body And when you save us, you save us past, you save us present. We are part of this continuous stream of the people of God who you save. And here we are today. And what are we? If we think that we are a set of individuals that get together once on a Sunday... If we think that we just happen to be a church here in this place, we are losing what it means to be part of the body of Jesus Christ. We we come into this community, and the failures of this community we bear. I'll put it like this let me give you a description. One of the great challenges for the Christian faith in 21st century Western thinking, or I guess there's a problem with religion from the new atheists, with the tagline that everything, all the trouble in the world, boils down to religion. That's the first line. We could could think about that for a few minutes. I don't agree with it. I think the problem is what we are as people, not religion. We could, we'll pass that for now. But the next layer down is, one of the problems is when you look back over the Christian faith, it's done some terrible things. How do we respond to that? I think the answer is this. In the same sort of spirit of Nehemiah, is yes, we confess the sins of God's people. There is no right in some of the atrocities that have been carried out in the name of Jesus. We confess the sins of our people. There's a terrible thing that has been done in the past. Many terrible things have been done in the past. But if it's all about God's faithfulness and it's not about our obedient performance, then isn't that the great hope? That those things can be realities. Father, we have not <coughs> declared your name as a people faithfully. Forgive us for that. Why do we confess? What, what's part of. The act of confession, doing yes, it's naming it before God, but it's naming it before us as well, isn't it? It's saying simply, "Let's not go there. Let's not go there again." We were coming back from Liverpool yesterday, and I um, don't know whether you saw it on the news. There was um, a bit of a bit of trouble outside Lime Street Station yesterday. All sorts of uh, all sorts of police around with riot gear and and all the rest of it. Uh, And basically what had happened is a group of neo-Nazis had decided to march in Manchester, but at the last minute they'd changed their plans uh, and they travelled into Liverpool and they'd met in a pub just outside of Lime Street Station. And word had got around and uh, there was an anti-fascist league group who were facing... Uh, this neo-Nazi group who were wanting to march from that pub down past St. George's and down onto the, uh, the riverfront. Surrounded with police, riot shields, the lot. There was missiles being thrown and all sorts. But in amongst that group, are the, yeah, there was definitely those that wanted conflict. There was definitely those that wanted to face it out. But there were a number of, I guess you would call them passive activists who were simply holding up signs which said, Nazi, never again. And I thought, that's, re- that's really interesting, isn't it? In a sense, it's saying, yes, we've been there in the past, and we're not going there again. That's at least part of what confession does, isn't it? By hiding it away from ourselves, we hide it away from the possibility of stating it, naming it, and saying, I'm not going to go there again. It's being honest before God and saying, that's who I am. And I'm not going to go there again. I don't want to go there again. Help me not to go there again. Jesus said it like this. When you pray, say this, forgive us our debts forgive us our debts. He encouraged his people to pray together, to say together, forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 5, Colossians chapter 1. Repeatedly, repeatedly, this picture that the church is one. To body. I find that so encouraging. I find that great news because the church is called to be all sorts of things. And I personally can't deliver even a fraction of what the church is called to be. Thank God because I'm part of it, we deliver it together. There are some who are called to be evangelists. They're brilliant. They're just the kind of people that can just build a relationship with me. I can't do that I wish I could but they can do it fantastically uh, and they build a relationship and they did they just proclaim the name of Jesus in a way which is so helpful so simple so engaging they live it out There are acts of goodness and compassion and care for the wider community that are being done by this body of which I am part of and by that very act We are together being the completion of what the church is called to be. It's great news. So we appropriate it. And yet this confession also fills us with a little bit of trepidation. Because it is backwards and forwards. It's up and down. We deliver it, we fail. We deliver it, we fail. We deliver it, we fail. What's been built is the walls of the temple of the city the temple's been reestablished sacrifices once again been reestablished now in jerusalem i don't know whether you know but most of the celebration of of sacrifices in the old testament the majority of it is sacrifices of joy and feasting and celebration there's drink offerings and, and all sorts of different ways in which sacrifice is celebrated. Most of the time, the sacrifice is eaten along with the one who's bringing the sacrifice. There's great joy, there's celebration. It's as if we're saying that we eat at the table of God. In cultural terms, it's a very powerful thing. But there's one sacrifice which is not consumed... By anybody. It's the scapegoat, the sacrifice of atonement. Because for all of that confession, we are still faced with a problem, aren't we? I can name it, I can declare it before God, and what does that do for God? What does God do with that confession? Does He say, it doesn't matter, it's okay? It's all right, I know that that now you've confessed it, we can move forward. If he did that, he would lose part of who he is. He is a merciful God, but he's also a just God. He can't just magically make the offense disappear. It would not be just to do that. And yet what is now re-established in Jerusalem, what it prepares us for is a sacrifice which gives us hope in confession. It's a sacrifice which says that when you come to me and confess your sin, I'll punish that sin. I'll punish it. All of that will be taken, and I will deal with that sin in that sacrifice. The scapegoat was a fascinating moment in the wilderness. It was a a lamb that was sent out into the wilderness, sent outside of the camp, and it carried the sins of the people on it. Jerusalem's now built, isn't it? The city is now completed. And every sacrifice from this moment on continues to occur only within the city walls until one sacrifice. The sacrifice is Jesus who is actually sacrificed outside of the city put out from the people which makes confession possible. For us today, if we wandered into the police station tonight and confessed our guilt to some terrible crime, we would bear the price. And our God is way more just than any justice system that any country can ever conceive of. So when we come to Jesus and we confess our sin through Him before the Father and we say, this is my guilt, the Father looks at that confession. It's as though though Jesus stands between us and takes that confession and the father looks back and sees through the sacrifice of Jesus and sees us forgiven. Which makes confession safe. But it also makes confession essential to relationships. I want to encourage you as we continue through this journey that we continue to work out what does it mean for us individually, personally to be truly, deeply honest with God.